It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the Conservative Party conference, Theresa May's extraordinary speech, the lack of new policy ideas, and the lack of new thinking. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, political correspondent, Henry Mans, and political commentator, Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. So it was the turn of the Conservatives to hold their annual gathering in Manchester this week. Until the last day, it was a pretty lifeless and dreary event. Aside from Boris Johnson and Ruth Davidson, there was no really exciting speeches, the crowd weren't very enthused, there were no new policy directions and little substantial discussion about how to beat Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. And as I'm sure listeners know, things took a slightly different turn for the worse on the last day. When Theresa May took to the stage, her efforts to apologise to the party for June's general election and lay out her British dream were somewhat undermined by a protester handing her a P45, a coughing fit that almost curtailed the whole speech and the state falling apart behind her, all told it was one of the most bizarre political speeches of modern times. George Parker, we were in the hall and it's still slightly painful to recall that hour of torture we were there and we were just the journalists listening to the speech, never mind poor Theresa May in the cabinet having to give it. Is that a fair assessment that it was bizarre and extraordinary? Extraordinary and excruciating. Yeah, I mean, I've, I must have watched twenty or thirty party leaders' prime ministerial speeches at party conferences through the years, and it was the first one I've had to watch through my fingers. It was that bad. You and, and me both. <laughs> oh my goodness! And it was, um, you know, you were just willing her to get through it. The party tried to help her out by doing Stalin-esque standing ovations, but it was awful. And of course, it wouldn't really have mattered too much if she was already in a position of strength, if she was Tony Blair in his pomp. But the problem is, of course, it just played into what people already felt about her, which is that she was a weak leader, not up to the job. And there was that classic line in her speech, she wanted to be the voice of the voiceless and then lost her voice. (laughs) The metaphors for this week have been run through thousands of newspaper columns. But if we take each of the things, obviously, the P45 was this prankster who got into the hall. And there's a very good question. How on earth did he get into the hall? The security at these conferences is pretty tight. It's airport-style security. And even when he was there, one of the photographers said to me, nobody tried to remove him. It was actually a Conservative (laughs) Party staffer who had to drag him away. So there seems to have been a real security breach there. A massive security breach. I mean, I suppose that you know you could register with your local conservative party and become a delegate and he was armed with nothing more than a piece of paper with p45 written on it but nevertheless the fact there was no security between the audience and the prime minister and as you say the fact he was able to stand in front of the prime minister for what seemed like an eternity but it was probably at least a few seconds i watched it back and it was actually quite a long time he kept holding that p45 and then giving boris the thumbs up and then and then sort of just sauntering along seeming to talk to every single member of the cabinet, including people with the most secure secure ratings in the cabinet, the Home Secretary, the Defence Secretary. It was extraordinary. And then obviously the coughing fit, 
you know, some say that this was prompted by the stress of the prankster, but the fact was the Prime Minister hadn't been well that week and her staff had advised her not to undertake so many commitments. But Mrs May, whatever you say about her, is a workhorse. She's devoted to the job and she did all the engagement. She did something like six or seven broadcast interviews the day before and then had this coughing fit. And when it happened, you know, I looked at the paper in front of me, as I'm sure you did, and there were nine pages left to go. And she seemed somewhat stranded there. It was amazing. There was no plan to sort of say if this happened to cut the end or go off the stage. And it was only thanks to Philip Hammond's cough suite in his pocket that she actually got through it. Uh, well, yeah, it was it was an extraordinary thing. I think, to be honest, she would have been better off going off the stage and having coming a break back. for five minutes and coming back a bit later rather than soldiering on. I mean, look, we've all been there. We've all been in the cinema or the theatre and you get the cough, it won't stop. But I've never seen that happen to a politician. And the thing is, yes, I'm sure it's something to do with the cold, but also I think it's something to do with, with pressure and the stress of the occasion as well. And, well, you know, it could happen to all of us. The problem is that prime ministers in the situation Theresa May's in want respect and when they want to earn authority, they don't want sympathy. And I suppose this comes to the fundamental point of all this, that, you know, politics is pretty brutal. It wasn't Neil Kinnock's fault he fell in the sea. It wasn't John Major's fault in the nights that half his cabinet were off having affairs. These things just happen and leaders have to deal with them and dealt with the hand they're given. You know, Gordon Brown was dealt a very rough hand when he was prime minister. And those are the circumstances they're in. And no matter how much Theresa May is pitied and people were sorry for her, the fact is... This week was about building political capital, at least holding on to it. And she's lost even more capital from the weak position she was at before. Yeah, that's true. You um, Once the label sticks to you, it's very hard to shake it off. And she was already de- marked down as a bit of a loser after the general election fiasco, even though, of course, she, she won, but not anywhere near as well as she'd hoped to. And then this just made her look hapless and like a weak leader. And so, you know, you only have to think back to the purpose of holding that election. It was to... Re- crush to, the saboteurs, to crush the, I believe. To crush the saboteurs and to give her the strong mandate that would allow her to go and look Macron and Merkel in the eye in these negotiations with this strong prime minister. And now look what we're left with. It's um, it's pitiful, really. So this, of course, has reopened the leadership can of worms this week, just when we thought the Conservative Party was taking a few days off from discussing the leadership question. It's now come back to that again. And we've had this, again, a very bizarre sight of Grant Shapps, who is the disgraced former Conservative Party minister and chairman, who is the head of this cabal of up to 30. I've eventually to know how big you think this cabal is on the TV airwaves, saying that they didn't want this to be public, yet he's been on Sky News, Five Live, Talk Radio, LBC, putting out this leadership plot and says that we think Theresa May needs to go. And of course, this all matters because if they can get 48 names, then a leadership contest is open. And one would assume Theresa May would not fight that leadership contest. You know, she could, but it would be very damaging for the whole government. But what on earth is going on here and how big is this plot? Because I don't feel it's this big at all. No, and uh, I think Theresa May is a bit lucky in her enemies in the case of Grant Shapps. He's someone who... Um, also known as Michael Green. Yes, who has an alter ego. And some people in the Conservative Party regard him as something of a fantasist. And the question is, is he being a fantasist and imagining he's got these 30 or so or up to 30 MPs behind him? I mean, up to 30 covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? It, might be, speaking, it might be, it might be considerably, considerably less than 30. Look, I mean, just talking to people behind the scenes... There is a widespread view in the Conservative Party, whether it's Remainers or Leavers, that removing Theresa May would make things much, much worse, that it would throw the party into chaos. There'd be a leadership contest which would spit the party on European lines. Uh, The new leader might be unable to lead the party. 
and the new leader would under, be under huge pressure to go to the country and seek their own personal mandate in a general election, which in those circumstances, Labour would win, and then Brexit could be thrown up in the air. So the, the scenarios that play out by removing Theresa May are awful from the Conservative Party. And in a way, it doesn't matter whether Theresa May is a brilliant leader or a, a waxwork or a box of chocolates. Frankly, leaving her there is better than removing her. Now, this events might change by the time our listeners are hearing this podcast, but I suppose, is there any question of her resigning, in your view? Because, you know, there's been lots of sort of rumours going around Westminster that her husband had said to her back in the summer she should resign and that she even tried to resign. But at the moment, do you think what happened in Manchester has broken her confidence enough or do you think she'll go away for this weekend, take a deep breath and realise what you've just said, that if I go, my duty to my country and my party will disappear and things will get much worse. Well, that calculation hasn't changed from the morning after the general election. That's, um, that is her view. Uh, it's her duty to party and country. And you're right, there are rumours that she wanted to resign over that weekend. I think that would have only been natural. But she was told in very clear terms by her cabinet allies, but also by the so-called men in grey suits, the Backbench 1922 committee, that she had a duty, having got the party in that, into that situation, to carry on leading it. And frankly, that equation has not changed after a coughing fit in Manchester. It's still the same thing. Now, we have no way of telling what her frame of mind is after that speech. People inside the, the Number 10 operation say that Philip May has hardly been away from her side since the speech, that the mood is grim. Others say that she's okay. They dispute accounts that she's extremely distraught. What we do know is that in the immediate aftermath of the speech, she went back to her house in Sonning in Berkshire with her husband, Philip, and she spent a day completely out of um, the limelight. She emerged on Friday to say that she was carrying on, looking forward to introducing an energy bill next week and the next round of Brexit negotiations. Business as usual. And she will have been, I'm sure, bolstered by the fact that there has been an outpouring, not just of sympathy, but support from the cabinet, from all sections of the party. So I think she's got the support to go on, but she's only human. And at what point does she think, actually, I can't do this anymore? Have I become more of a liability than an asset to the party? And there'll be a lot of people in the Conservative Party keeping their fingers crossed that uh, Theresa May decides to stay on. One of the things she can do if she doesn't reside is to do something about the state of her government. As we argue in the FT Weekend's editorial, one thing she could look at is reconfiguring the cabinet because the cabinet as it stands was put together after the EU referendum last year and it was very much to try and bring the remain and leave parts of the party together. People weren't necessarily given portfolios because of their aptitude or their enthusiasm or their media performance skills. And when you look at certain areas of the government, there is a case say, well, hang on a minute, shouldn't there be someone better here? And also this fact that there is a lot of talent on the Conservative backbenches. You know, some people like Nicky Morgan have gone to the Treasury Select Committee. Some others like Anna Subri are not doing anything. And then there's this younger generation of 2015 and 2017 MPs who had mustard keen to get involved and take the fight to Labour and I think a lot of focus seems to focus on the party chairman role. This is essentially the CEO of the Conservative Party and Patrick McLaughlin who took up this role is well liked within the party, he's well respected he's been around a long time but the fingers are certainly pointing from what I've heard in his direction for what happened at conference, the fact the stage design fell apart <laughs> in the middle of the speech and the accreditation issues and it feels like if you're going to begin to do something to reinvigorate it, that would be the natural place to start well that would be one place to start and yeah patrick mclaughlin was under considerable scrutiny after the election the fact that the party yes, wasn't ready for an election and the conference management was 
a fiasco. But he, he's made it clear that he wants to, to step down, so maybe a reshuffle is required. And there are people senior in the party who are urging Theresa May to get back on the front foot by doing exactly what you said, Sebastian, which is to have a reshuffle and clear out some of the dead wood. I don't tell you, you will have sat through some of the speeches at the Tory conference and there is a lot of dead wood to be cleared out. Some of the most leaden ministerial speeches uninspiring, uninspiring well. I've ever seen, lacking in any policy, sense of new policy ideas. And to be honest, I don't think that's just the fault of the ministers concerned, but the fact that number 10 has been a dead hand on any original thinking in the cabinet. But there's a counter argument, which is she's come out of Manchester even weaker. We've seen that Grant Shapps's plot is uh, populated mainly by people who are former ministers who have grudges to bear against a the lot Prime of Remain supporters, and a lot of well. Remain supporters as well. And you know the advice that the Chief Whip Gavin Williamson will be giving to the Prime Minister is: it might seem tempting to try and assert your authority and regain the initiative by having a Knight of the Long Knives, Harold Macmillan style, but you'll end up with a load new of new enemies on the back benches. And when you have a non-existent Commons majority and you're very weak anyway, is that what you want to do? So that's a big strategic call for the Prime Minister. And then on top of all that, we had the big FT scoop this week about the state of the public finances, which is that we looked at a lot of the announcements in Manchester, which we're going to come on to later in the podcast. But the fact is Philip Hammond doesn't have that much money to play with and that the budget coming up in November is going to be tricky. And I think I think it was the front page of the Times this week that basically said she's one more crisis away from a meltdown because and there's so many points to head. The Brexit negotiations are starting again next week. We've got the EU Council meeting October the 19th and then all these bills for Brexit are beginning to come through Parliament. So when you look forward to the end of the year, there's still a lot of hurdles for Theresa May to get through. Yeah, I think the um, overwhelming sense of, uh, of the conference in Manchester was of a party that's completely trapped. There just seems to be no obvious way out. Every way you look is dark tunnels. You know, the, you, you mentioned the Brexit legislation, the withdrawal bill, that comes back in October. Um, that's going to be very complicated and very difficult. Seven separate Brexit bills to negotiate through the House of Commons and through the House of Lords. You've got no money in the kitty at all. A budget in November which is going to be dominated by uh, much more red ink than we'd expected thanks to the fact that Britain's productivity record is remains as woeful as it has been since the financial crash. So there's no way out. You know, you can't spend your way out of trouble. You can't come up with a domestic policy agenda either because you haven't got any ideas. Or if you do have ideas, you might struggle to get them through Parliament without a majority. And you've got Brexit, the one thing which splits the party more than anything else, looming in front of you. It would be a, a huge test for any prime minister, for a prime minister whose authority is shot and who has no Commons majority. It's uh, it's like sort of, uh, what's it like? It's like trying to climb the Matterhorn in your slippers. The thing that I came away from that conference was the Conservatives seem to have almost given up the idea of governing, which is extraordinary when you think of how long they took to get back to power, 13 years of lots of efforts to renew and try new leaders and new ideas. Um, and they never really came up with anything to defeat Tony Blair. It was only once Tony Blair had gone and David Cameron was had a much easier rival in the form of Gordon Brown. But the sense that I got from the conference this year was the parties actually after seven years of leading the country actually just feels you know we can just keep things ticking over or keep things going there's not really anything that's really driving us forward in the way that there should be well i think that's a good point and if you look back to david cameron's victory in 2010 his government was given a mission by the effects of the financial crash the austerity and managing the public finances became the mission of david cameron's government i mean there was overlain with some social reforms but essentially austerity defined that 
that government. Now, the public are tiring of that conservative mission and you're looking at what else is left. And what you saw at the conference in Manchester was a party scrabbling around for ideas. And in the end, flagship ideas, which essentially were rip-offs of the um, Ed Miliband manifesto of 2015. So in... Every respect, this looks like a parliament which, as you say, has lost its will to govern, it's lost its will to stick together, facing daunting political challenges. If the optics and politics of the Conservative conference were bad, then the policies weren't much better either. Throughout the speeches from cabinet ministers that week, there was very scant of radical new policies were promised. Instead, a bit of messing about with housing, energy caps, the northern powerhouse, while on the fringes were dominated by talk of Brexit. So, Henry Mance, this conference was a moment for the Conservative Party to say, we had all these new ideas at the general election in June. Here's how we're going to implement or take some of them forward. But the thing I was really struck by the speeches in the main hall were they were very much just tinkering around the edges and full of platitudes that weren't really much new compared to Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party was overwhelmed with ideas. Some of them might be old, but at least they were solid ideas. Yeah, it felt to some extent like the the tank was empty. We did have a process fairly fairly recently where a manifesto was put together with not, not many goodies in it from the Conservative Party side. And they, they, you know, have been unable really to get out of that sensation that they are really trying to eke out a government without a particular agenda. The site problem, Miranda Green, is that Labour has identified all these problems with housing, with energy bills. Just come up with radical solutions based on what you might call pure socialism. You know, so renationalise the national grid. You know, have a huge wave of council house building. And the Conservatives have essentially said, "Yes, you're right on this, but here's a slightly weaker prescription." And the whole problem with that idea, amongst the more blue-blooded Conservatives, is well, if you're acknowledging this problem, why don't you just go and vote for Labour and have the whole radical thing instead of tweaking tuition fees, just scrap tuition fees. So it, it did seem to me as if the party was just a bit lost, as Henry was saying. And there's an even worse example than those that you've listed, which is on energy policy, for example. Mrs May just announced that she was going to actually adopt a proposal put forward by Ed Miliband when he was Labour leader, which is to cap energy prices to sort of try and deal with the uh, living standards squeeze. So you're absolutely right. They've, they've, they've inched a little way towards some Labour positions and they've adopted some Labour policies wholesale. And it might leave a voter thinking, well, why not just buy the Labour product if the Tory product is turning into Labour light? This is a huge issue for them because, I mean, Mrs May, to her great credit, you know, when she made her first speech on the steps of Downing Street when she became Prime Minister, she actually sounded like somebody who understood that the country thought it was facing serious problems that the government of the day needed to address, you know, whether that was living standards or inequality uh, of opportunity or indeed outcome, or indeed sort of more technocratic things like whether we have enough vocational education in this country. But now she's in such a weakened position that it sounded as if some of the policy prescriptions that she was able to outline this week were far too little towards solving those problems. And I think those... Those examples you listed, particularly on tuition fees and on housing, it was slightly embarrassing to hear them sort of pre-leak the idea that there was going to be a huge housing announcement and then to find out it was 5,000 houses a year over a five-year period, as if that is 
is adequate to the to the to the scale of the problem that we face. I think the problem with that, Henry, was they'd likened it to the Sun newspaper to Harold Macmillan's house building program, where three hundred thousand houses were built a year, and then when the actual numbers came out, as Miranda said, it was entirely different. And this, she was obviously trying to go back to that initial message outside Down Street of being the prime minister for radical change, and it was one um, cabinet minister said to me at the conference, Theresa May is at her best when she's not a conventional conservative, when she challenges what you think and puts up very different ideas. And she tried to do that in her speech, you know, the rhetoric, that's who I'm in it for, you know, people who are oppressed, people who are discriminated against by the state. But it never seems to match up to the to that promise. No, I think by instinct, she's obviously a very cautious politician. There isn't that much money left in the tank. I mean, we've had a story this week showing that Treasury forecasts suggest that Bloodbath. A, a bloodbath, but basically the money that Philip Hammond had penciled in to cushion the impact of Brexit is probably not really there anymore. So so they don't have uh, money to play around with. I mean, going back to that speech, it's right that she set out a very challenging and ambitious agenda. But I think she actually made her life far too hard uh, last July when she put forward her view of what was wrong with Britain. I mean, we just had a referendum campaign in which the dominant and most successful message was, let's bring back £350 million and spend most of it on it on the NHS. Now, that might be an impossibility, but she should have picked up that, run with it, and said, we'll find £350 million, however it may be, and we're going to spend it on public policies. And then she would have got some kind of feel-good factor, some kind of idea that the government was taking from, say, wealthy landowners, say, the rich, and putting it into services that people care for. She also made a lot of other mistakes at that point. Henry, I'm sure you'd agree, one of which was actually trying to expend political capital that she didn't really have on, on, on slightly nutty ideas like loads more grammar schools, for example. And though that, that proposal, of course, has completely gone now. Haven't heard about that. Uh, haven't heard about that for a long time. She was, of course, saddled with a bunch of terrible things from the 2015 Tory manifesto, which they thought they weren't going to have to do because they thought they were going to be in coalition, not least these very, very ambitious swinging welfare cuts, which have caused quite a lot of the political backlash against the government at the moment. So you're right. She she, she, she had this sort of hardline interpretation of Brexit, very uncompromising, and possibly only chose the messages she wanted to hear from the referendum vote and the referendum result. I think that's a very good point you've picked up on there, Henry, because she became Prime Minister after the EU referendum, which was won by the Vote Leave campaign, which essentially was putting forward an alternative plan for government to David Cameron's, which was a lot more spending on public services, border controls, and by the end of the referendum was fairly coherent. And I think the expectation was those who ran the Vote Leave campaign would then go into government. And as we know, Michael Gove stabbed Boris Johnson in the front, back and sideways. That <laughs> didn't happen. And Theresa May was almost in a bubble from that in a way. And a lot of liberal leavers I've spoken to actually say her biggest mistake was not tackling that £350 million for the NHS. And if Boris Johnson had become PM, I know from people close to Boris that his first act would have been to put a bill to Parliament to give that money to the NHS straight away. Now, I don't know where you would have found it, down the back of the sofa or something. You but- can find, yeah, you can find money. I mean, you, you, then there was always the mandate i think to put up taxes or to 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 take to reduce some reliefs there I yeah think, given the anti anti-elite message that came through in the referendum campaign i think the conservative brand is now really muddied the very clear message that worked for cameron and osborne which is we you can't have fiscal irresponsibility you can't have intervention in the uh, in the market that uh, goes back to the 1970s theresa may gave a speech which said i'm a i'm a champion of the free market and yet she also proposed an energy cap 
So if you're listening to it, you'll you'll kind of have some kind of cognitive dissonance about well, sorry, are you are you saying what you do or are you just doing one thing and saying the other? Mm. The, the thing that I found very mm. odd from the conference memoranda was that it basically oscillated between this Miliband light esque of state intervention and then these tub thumping calls to go back to the era of Margaret Thatcher and 1980 free market economics. But it just seemed bizarre to me because that's if we were at that conference in 1980, that would be like the equivalent of Jacob Rees-Mogg standing up and saying let's go back to the 1950s and Anthony Eden's um, invasion of Suez. You know, the difference between the ideas is so far away now that the party does seem to be a bit bankrupt. Well there are two huge problems with spending your conference week talking about how the Labour Party would take us back to the 1970s and to the era of nationalisation and the three day week and all the rest of it. The number one problem with that is that most people don't remember. You know 47 is supposed to be the key age which people slip over into being Tory voters rather than being on the left or centre-left. And nobody under that age really will have known what they were talking about when they talked about the 70s. The other problem I think is worse, and this is what you're alluding to. In politics, you're supposed to show, don't tell. You can't tell people day after day in speeches from a platform that capitalism is good for you. You have to demonstrate it. And that is to do with people not feeling powerless and not feeling exploited partly by some of these privatised industries that they feel are bleeding them dry. So they have to propose solutions. The great irony of that is some of those solutions are, are more regulated, are things like price caps, which sound as if you're arguing against your own ideology on your own ethos as Henry has said. If we just take water for example which the FT has done a lot of reporting on recently even the most staunch capitalists will look at how the water privatisation has gone and think hang on a minute is this really the best thing and you know if you can read our FT editorials you can see that you know nationalising water is not the easy answer but it goes to this fundamental discourse in society that capitalism isn't working and those defending it are not doing a very good job of it so the alternative which is Jeremy Corbyn's um, highly interventionist state, which might you could not even describe as capitalism in some ways, is, is what people are liking the sound of. There's a massive sort of disconnect between uh, what Margaret Thatcher thought she was doing with those original privatisations, which she actually described as power to the people through a shareholder democracy. And now Jeremy Corbyn standing on a different political platform, also promising power to the people by renationalising everything and taking it back into state control. The problem is some of the solutions to these monopoly industries that have been privatised and therefore have no proper competition and are able to exploit the consumer is the solution is so technocratic and dull. I mean, you try and you try constructing a party conference speech where you talk about you know, re yes, exactly Jeff. recalibrating the powers of the the individual regulators. It would go absolutely nowhere. So you have to try and find some sort of vision and of course that kind of technocratic solution is exactly what's fallen out of favour politically so tuition fees you know Henry quite rightly raised the mess that the government are in on, on, on this one of the things they did was actually to announce a very good change which was to raise the threshold at which you start repaying your student loans from the frozen level of £21,000 a year to £25,000 a year. That's actually a very good progressive change and it will stop a lot of people being caught by the repayments who shouldn't be. But it sounds like a tiny little tinkering with the terms. And as you say, when the Labour Party's just offering to, to overthrow the whole system and make university education free at the point of use again, it sounds inadequate to meeting people's concerns. 
Henry, we've also both been at the Labour Party conference there and there was a lot of continuation of the ideas that were put forward in the party's manifesto there. And those ideas, you know, some say they're just reheated 1970s socialism, that's the Tory attack line. But to a lot of people in that hall, they sounded fresh and new and, you know, very common sense in the way of tackling these problems with capitalism. You know, do you think that thinking on the left is better and more developed than on the right at the moment? I'm not sure about that. I think, you know, there do seem to be uh, simple solutions which seem like the obvious answers. You know, bring back PFI contracts into public um, control. What was it? Of, Mail, rail, energy, we're taking them back in the words John of John McDonald. McDonald. Exactly. And I don't see a particularly nuanced understanding there of the shortcomings of the state in running services and the problems that Conservative and Labour governments have come up in the past. Um, and you know, if you just think about the the strain on our civil service of doing half the things that, that the Labour Party is suggesting, then I think you get into what is safer territory for the Tory party, which is talking about competence. And if they can depict the Labour uh, shadow cabinet is ridiculously incompetent, then perhaps they're on something. That's really difficult right now, Henry, isn't it? Because, you know, the, the governing ca- party's cabinet looks as if it's all over the place. Mm. And again, as you were saying, that Tory brand of we are the natural party of government because we're the only ones who you can trust to be the managers, even if we aren't aren't very rich on ideas. That's kind of shot to pieces at the moment. It's a yeah. huge problem for them. I would agree with Seb, though, I think that this idea that the Labour Party is awash with fresh new thinking is is not really justified by the evidence. And actually, I was also at the Lib Dem conference in Bournemouth where the background chat was all about the dearth of ideas on the centre-left and how the kind of intellectual momentum has been lost. And that's probably just a huge issue across Western democracies, actually, post-crash, is that, you know, the way that the system has operated has fallen down and an opportunity to redesign the way that our market economies or mixed economies work has has kind of been lost. And then finally, Henry, I guess it's all exacerbated by Brexit, this huge thing that no one really wants to talk about, just wants to get on with and push out the way. It's just consuming all time and energy from really all parties. You know, the Labour conference, they tried to talk about it as little as possible, but it popped up on the fringes a lot. The Lib Dem conference, they did talk about it a lot, mostly about trying trying to overturn it. And then at the Conservative conference, it was there and it was all this kind of the, 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 the hardline Brexiters were saying, let's just get on with it. Everyone else was just trying to shuffle away from it. So, the, you know, the question for the next couple of years of British politics is, is there any bandwidth to cope with anything but Brexit? I think basically the answer is no, but the public doesn't want to think about the Brexit process. Brexiters want to get it over with, or a, a lot of Brexiters want to get it over with, and a lot of Remainers are resigned to it happening against their will. And therefore politicians cannot be honest and say, look, you can't expect us to redesign uh, public services in the next two years because we've got this you know, complete logjam of legislation coming through just to keep things afloat. Well, on that happy note, that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to George, Henry and Miranda for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment. Until then, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.